So um, I mentioned this morning we're starting this new sermon series. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so it's like Heady Sunday. I hope you're in for Heady Sunday. No? Maybe just a couple of you. All right. If you'd like to take notes, today's your day. If not, you can take a nap. I won't judge you. Um, But you're missing out on something really good. So what I'd like to do is just dig in. Uh, I'm going to read for you a passage um, at the beginning of the book of Genesis. Um, So if you're not familiar with the scriptures, it's the very first book in the Bible. Easy to find. Flip flip a few pages past the table of contents and uh, Genesis 1, 1 through 5, and then we're going to skip forward to 26 and uh, read through um, the very first portion of chapter 2. And then uh, I will pray and we will uh, dig into the generosity of the Father. Let's read together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Skip a bunch of the chapter. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this, uh, this moment in time that we get to spend in song. We get to spend in your scriptures. We get to spend in coming to the table. We get to spend in fellowship with one another. And Father, we ask that, uh, that by your spirit this morning, we might be uh, willing to give ourselves to you and to uh, how it is that you want to mold and shape our minds, our thoughts towards you, our perspective of you, and also how you might want to mold and shape um, our lives, the ways in which we behave and act in this world. And we trust that as we stare at you and we get a greater glimpse of you and specifically even your generosity that you will mold and shape us. And so we give this time to you. Would you please answer our prayers for we ask in the most matchless and the most precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen and amen. So uh, this morning, I would like to start with, um, with a quote um, from 
a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer. Some of you may have, have heard of him. He wrote a, a number of books. He was a preacher um, in the latter part of uh, the 1900s, um, even earlier on, mostly like 70s, 60s or so. Um, he wrote a really famous book called The Pursuit of God, but he also wrote uh, another book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And uh, in this book, he says something really, really interesting and profound that I think is very helpful and kind of where it is that I want to lay a foundation for the entire series. And so I want to read it to you and then kind of elaborate on it for just a minute as we dig into what we're talking about for the next several weeks. So he says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It says, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. The most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. So here's what he's saying. He's saying in that first statement, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. When somebody says, God, what comes to your mind, he is saying is the most important thing about you, and here's why, as he ends in that quote, because you are naturally inclined to become like that. You want to become like whatever you think God is like. So whatever you think God to be, you're inclined or you're going to pursue becoming like that. And therefore, he's saying, it's the most important thing about you. And so when it comes to who God is and what God is like, namely his character, his nature, his attributes, these things are extremely extremely important. And one of the attributes or qualities or characteristics of God that I think is often overlooked or maybe just misunderstood or that we have misconceptions of in terms of God and his character, his nature, is that of him being generous. I wouldn't be surprised if most of us think of God as sort of like a cosmic killjoy or maybe in some sense just being finite. Um, in that, what I mean is like he's sort of this God who maybe has everything, but he's stingy. So he's like always dangling the carrot in front of your face and trying to get you to like run after him, right? And he's like, I got it, I got enough, but I wanna make sure that you strive after this and he puts us to work, right? Or he is this cosmic killjoy where maybe he just, he just wants us to just suffer through life, right? So either he doesn't have enough or he doesn't care to give it to you. But really, when you read through the scriptures and you think about who God is in terms of the way that he acts, the way that he speaks about himself, one of the primary characteristics that you find about God is that he is, by nature, generous. And what I mean by that is that God doesn't just want to give. He doesn't just want to be generous. He doesn't just make decisions to be generous. But he has to. And he has to because it's part of who he is. And what I mean by that is if you just think about love, right? John the Apostle would refer to God as love. To be love is to be giving. There's no way around it. So to love is to give, to give is to love, and if God is love, then God must give. Therefore, God is in himself generous. There's no way around it. It's part of who he is. He cannot deny himself. This is actually really, really quite critical in terms of the way in which we live life because the way we think about God is going to, again, we're going to want to be molded into his image. We're gonna be shaped by him. And if we fail to see him in this way, then we miss out on so much of what it means to actually be human. And so here's what I mean by that, right? 
depending on your perception of God, whether he actually is infinite and has everything and is in himself generous versus if he's finite or is just a cosmic killjoy, you tend to land on this spectrum that could actually take place, I mean, you could go back and forth on this spectrum at any given day, any given moment, any given hour, where on one side, you view the world as scarce. And what I mean by that is lacking, right? Where you look at the world and you go, I don't know if there's actually enough for me or for all of us to survive. And so you look at, at, out at the world or even what it is that you have and you think to yourself, if this is all that there is and there's not enough, then you live kind of in fear, right? Where you start to hoard things for yourself or you're greedy, you start to pursue just more for yourself because there's only so much to go around. And if your view of God is finite or killjoy, that's the way you look at the world. You live in fear, you live in greed. On the other side of the spectrum is the idea of abundance, that there is plenty, that when God made the world and as people even come into this world, there is enough for all of us to actually thrive and to flourish. And God, therefore, is infinite. God has enough. He lacks nothing. And so he gives as much as necessary for everybody to actually have a full life. If God is infinite and he's lacking nothing and that's the way that he's orchestrated things, then you live with a freedom, not a fear. You go, well, if, if there is enough, then I don't need to fear about hoarding it. And I don't also need to take from others in order to get for myself because there's plenty to go around. So the way that you view God impacts everyday decisions, especially in terms of whether or not he's generous. And so as we think through the very nature of God, like this actually has extremely practical implications on everyday life. But today, I wanna to think with you about the very nature or character of the Father and his generosity, both in his nature as we just described, but then also in his acts, his actions. Because if God really is in himself generous, then you're going to see it in the way in which he interacts with humanity, right? And so I wanna take us back to to the text that we just read, and kind of walk us through the nature of God as seen in Genesis one through two, but then also when things take a turn for the worse and we see the way that humanity interacts with God, how God still in his character and nature plays out this idea of generosity. And so if you look back with me, I wanna show you a number of things um, in terms of how it is that God gives. The first thing that God gives, as we read earlier, is that of light. Look back with me at Genesis one, one through three. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light. So there's darkness. There's void. It's formless. And by this, really what we have essentially is kind of chaos. And in this chaos, God desires for something good to come forth. And so what he does is he speaks into this darkness, into this void as the spirit is hovering. And by the spirit, he brings forth something. This thing that he brings forth, it says right here, he says, let there be light. He brings light out of the darkness. Now this idea of light, um, obviously just in the, in the terms in which we would refer to light is kind of obvious, like it lets us see things, right? But in the biblical narrative, the, the word light is used as a metaphor for a number of different things. In Genesis, it's used quite a number of times having to do uh, most particularly with the goodness of God. And so when he's looking down and he's seeing darkness, don't think just a literal dark room, think a lack of goodness. And when he brings light in, what he's doing is he's pulling out 
He's bringing forth goodness. So you can see this uh, a number of different ways in the Old Testament as I just described, but in particular, um, the way in which a king rules. So if you look back with me in uh, 2 Samuel, notice this. It says, the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, right? So when there's a king, and a king is ruling justly over people, ruling in the fear of God, notice this, he dawns on them like the morning light. So like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So when there's a good king who looks out at people and says, I I want to rule well, and they do, they rule with generosity and with love and with compassion, they're bringing light. This light is goodness, right? So when God speaks into the darkness and he says, let there be light, don't just think a dark room that now the lights are on, think goodness coming forth, right? But not even just goodness, there's a number of other metaphors as I mentioned, but also truth, right? So if you look into the Psalms, here's what you see in Psalm 43 and in 119. It says, send out your light and your truth. Notice how they're put together there. Let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So when God speaks into the darkness and he brings forth light, he's bringing forth goodness, but he's also bringing forth truth, right? Truth is that which coincides with reality. So the darkness keeps us from seeing or understanding what is really real, but here God enters in so that we might understand what reality is truly and fully. So the first thing that God gives, and notice this also, humanity has not been created, okay? So humanity has not earned, achieved, or anything like that, this light. God just does it because it's his nature. He looks at darkness, he'll have nothing of it. He brings forth goodness, he brings forth truth. It's just part of who he is. He has to interact with that darkness to bring forth light. But notice also, he gives beyond this. As he gives beyond this, he gives breath. And this is more than just life in our lungs, although that is it. In 2.7, it says, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This idea of breath, as I just said, is certainly, obviously, that of life, right? So you are breathing right now because God has desired to give you breath. So you're, you're a living being. But here, it's actually more so than this, as the, the writers of, of Genesis are putting these things together, what they're really trying to do is help us to understand how, uh, who human beings actually are um, in themselves, but also in relationship to God. And so here what we have is not just God breathing life in the sense where a person is now able to move their body, right? But breathing life in the sense of their identity, right? So this word breath is the same word that's used um, for the spirit that was hovering over the darkness, right? So when there was darkness and chaos, and the spirit's hovering over the spirit is the Hebrew word ruach, And here, what we have is the same ruach that was hovering over the darkness and bringing forth goodness and truth, now entering into human beings. And this is extremely significant because what is happening here in the way that God makes human beings and how he also empowers human beings is completely different than what he's done with every creature up to this point. So up to this point, God has spoken and he brings forth like the beasts of the field and the animals in the water and so forth, right? He he speaks and he brings them in. But when it comes to humanity, God gets down into the dirt with his own hands and he begins to form this being. And after he forms this being out of the dirt, out of the dust, out of the chaos or the darkness, really, in a sense, he breathes into him the same spirit that was hovering over the darkness and brought forth light. 
which takes human beings to a whole different level than all of other created things. Where here, what we have is human beings having the breath of God now means that we have an element of dignity, value, and worth that is unlike any other creature. Human beings made in the image of God means that we have something about us that is extraordinary, right? So here what we're seeing is not just, oh, you're able to live because of the breath of God. You actually have dignity, value, and worth because of God. And it's not just some human beings, right? It's every single human being. So it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter your race, your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter your educational level. Like you can look to your left, look to your right, look behind you, look in front of you, look at me, whatever, look in the mirror and acknowledge that being made in the image of God means that you have dignity, value, and worth. Every human being does. So he gives this goodness and truth but he also gives dignity, value, and worth to human beings. Now, again, mind you, and I'm gonna repeat this over and over again. This is, this is prior to human beings earning anything or achieving anything. He just gives. He gives goodness and truth. He gives breath, dignity, value, and worth. As you move on, you notice also that he gives place. And so the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So he doesn't say, hey, Man, humanity, where would you like to go? No, God does something. He builds this garden. Now, almost every scholar that I've read um, in, as it pertains to Genesis uh, 1 through 3, um, think about the, the creation of the garden in terms of temple language, which is really quite significant. And here's what I mean by that. Um, if you fast forward into the book of Exodus, and even if you fast forward even farther into when the temple is made in uh, 2 Samuel through Solomon, what you notice is there's all, this, um, there's, there's all this construction that has to do with the garden. So there's trees, there's plants. There's, and, and when you think about the tabernacle in particular um, in the book of Exodus, you notice that they're in the Sinai wilderness. There's nothing around. It's a dry and arid land. And God has them set up this tabernacle. And everywhere they travel, when they set it up, they set it up almost like it's an oasis in the middle of the wilderness. So there's these trees that they have to bring to it and plants. And so when you see the tabernacle, it's like, there's life. You're looking out at a dry, arid ground, and like, here, there's life. This language in Genesis 1 through 2 is this kind of temple language where God is constructing for himself not just a place for humanity to live and thrive in, but for humanity to live and thrive with God in. So temples were the places where humanity and the divine were able to come together, right? This is the way the ancient Near Eastern people thought. So temples were the overlap of that space. So here what God is doing is he's making a space that he's gonna put man in and then he himself is going to enter into as well. And so in, uh, in the day seven, when God rests, it's not that God took a nap. God wasn't like actually tired. Um, he enters in is, is really what's going on there. God puts man into this garden and then he enters in. And this is really actually quite critical because we all know um, how significant place actually is, right? When you think about your own home, what you think about, or even if you think about your childhood home, or even like your grandparents' home, like you, there's a whole bunch of different homes that probably you've been a part of throughout your life, and maybe even like right now, wherever that is, it's so significant because for us, it's a place of not just rest, but it's a place of safety, it's a place of comfort, it's a place where you can kind of escape the worries of the world, right? The things that make you anxious or afraid, and you can lay your head down and be okay. 
And every human being needs that sort of place. Like the idea of, of homelessness or not having space, right, strikes fear into every single one of us. Some of us have probably even been in that place or in a place where you're right on the cusp of maybe not having place and it really messes with our heads and our hearts and like, um, it strikes, like I, I said, fear into us. But God, again, before humanity does anything, have not achieved anything, have not earned anything, he makes a place. And not just for them, but for them and him to dwell together. So he sees the significance of this, right? So you see the generosity flowing out of God. But not just place, also sustenance. So God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. I was gonna go on and say that you can't eat of one particular, but notice God gives all of these plants so that these human beings can enjoy the fruit that is out there. Again, this is before they've achieved or earned anything. God gives to them, and, and listen to this. I use the word sustenance, but I, I wish I could have found something a bit more robust because sustenance sounds like it just keeps your physical body moving and capable of things. But here, there's actually way more to that. There's an element of joy that's given with these things, right? So could you even imagine, like, right now, think about, like, your favorite fruit, right? And you could actually go out into a vineyard or an orchard or whatever your fruit might be. You go out there and you pick it and you enjoy that, like, that, that fruit right there. Like, you just got it off of the tree or off the vine and it's so succulent and amazing, right? Imagine what it must have been like in Eden. Like, imagine the avocados in Eden, Right? Like avocados, I think, like split rooms, like people love them or they hate them. But growing up in Southern California, huge deal. <laughs> love avocados, right? And, and just imagine how amazing that must have been. This wasn't just so that they could have sustenance and able to move, but so that they could actually enjoy something, right? Because food isn't just about us being able to have calories and energy. Food also is a huge part of, of how it is that we enjoy life right? Food is a huge part of how we enjoy life. I mean, you think about some of your favorite foods and almost immediately, like if you're in a bad mood and somebody cooks that for you, you're like, cool, let's carry on with life. Like you forget about the worries, right? Somebody hands you an Oreo. You're like, yes, <laughs> I don't even care what was happening earlier today. Like, maybe that's just me. I need some milk too, but you get the idea. This is what's going on here. God is not just giving the, the ability to have calories and energy. He's giving joy with this, right? Again, before they've earned or achieved anything. You notice as it carries on, he also gives relationship. So he says, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. So Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So this is before sin ever enters into the world, right? Nothing has gone sour at this point. Man has place, man has light, man has goodness, man has the breath, man has all of this fruit to enjoy, man has God with him, and yet God looks down and he says, still, not good for man to be alone. And we talk about this concept uh, quite a bit in our church because we, we just talk about community a ton and the necessity of it, and that's what's going on here, right? is God is looking down at a person that he has made in his image. And what is lacking is relationship. Because to be made in the image of God would require 
having relationship, for God himself is an eternal relationship. As Protestants, we believe that God is in triune eternal relationship, right? Father, Son, Spirit, equal in dignity, value, and worth, but in constant love, right, from all of eternity. And if that's the way that God is, then when he makes something in his image, it must also be able to reflect that love. And as we're talking about here, even insofar as giving and receiving. And so he looks down, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. In order to image me well, he's got to be in relationship. But notice the language that's used here. It's really significant. When he says, I will make a helper fit for him. This word that is used for helper is used a number of times throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes, in fact, quite rarely, specifically to this first woman, but only a couple times. The majority of the time that this word is used, helper in the Old Testament, actually has to do with God as Savior, believe it or not. So when you read through the Psalms, you notice that David will cry out to this God who is Savior because he needs help. And what he means by help is not, I could do this on my own, but I'd appreciate a little bit of help. That's not what's going on here. When David cries out for a Savior and help, He's actually speaking to something he cannot, like literally cannot do on his own. So when God looks down and he sees man alone and makes a helper, he's saying that man is incapable of something. I need to give to him someone who can make him more capable of doing, right? So somebody who can do something that he literally cannot do. And so he gives to him this woman. Now in this, what we see is God God recognizing that that he wants something for humanity. He wants something for them that Adam just simply cannot do on his own. So again, Adam has not achieved anything. Adam has not earned anything. But here what we have is God providing light, goodness, and truth. We have him providing place and sustenance, and now we have him providing relationship, right? But as you carry on, he also gives purpose. So God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Notice this. God doesn't sit down and have a conversation with Adam and he's like, hey, show me your resume. I want to make sure that you're qualified for this garden that I've built. No. He just takes him and he puts him in there. And he gives to him, again, apart from achievement, apart from earning anything, he gives to him this amazing purpose. And this purpose here is to image God, right? So after he breathes his life into him, which now is spirit inside of Adam, he's now going to go and do the very same thing that God was already doing. God looks down at the darkness, the spirit hovering over, and God speaks, brings forth goodness. He breathes into man, puts him in the garden to go do the same thing. That's what a garden is, right? So he puts him in this garden so that he might look at whatever's chaotic as the weeds begin to grow, and he, he begins to think about how it is that he's going to bring forth goodness and beauty. And that's part of what a garden is about, right? The garden there with all of the food, but also with beauty, right? There's all this food, and so you get to pick from all of these trees, and you get to cut up these things, you get to mix them all together, and you get to create a dish that brings joy to people. So there's that, which is amazing. But you also get to look at the flowers, and you get to look at the different colors, and you get to just be amazed at the beauty. You just sit there and look at it and say, this is amazing, right? That's what's going on here. Just as God did this and made something beautiful and provided sustenance, So he puts man in the garden and says, I want you to just be like me. Again, man has not earned purpose, he's not achieved it, 
that just gets the opportunity to be a part, right? So God gives all of these things purely out of who he is, right? Just purely out of who he is. He can't deny himself. But here's the thing, right? As I'm thinking through these things, and if we're all being completely honest with us, and we go back to the idea of the scarcity versus abundant mentality or way of viewing the world, we often do look around, and whether it's in our own lives or friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, maybe even you in the room today, and you think to yourself, like, if God, if that really is the nature of God, if that's just who he is, if that's the way that he behaves because it's just flowing from him, then how come it seems as though our world is scarce? How come it seems as though oftentimes there isn't enough? How come sometimes like in my own life, if I were just to go through that list of things, I feel like I don't have those things? It might be for a season, it might be just a day, it might be for a long period of time, but you look, you look at your own life and you go, Anthony, you just said that God is so generous that he can't help but provide a relationship. And here you feel completely isolated. You feel like there's nobody who's really a friend. Maybe you've been looking for a spouse for a long time or you've wanted to have kids and like it's just not happening and you wonder to yourself, like if God really is who you just described, how come, how come that's not the case for me? Or in, in sustenance, like you actually are hurting for simple things like food, shelter, and clothing. Or you have family members, friends, whatever, who are hurting for those things. You go, well, like, Anthony, if that's who God is, then how come that doesn't appear to be the way in which the world seems to be operating. Like, if God really is infinite, lacking nothing, and there is abundance, how come it doesn't appear that way? And here's why. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are just the first two pages of a very, very long book. <laughs> and as the story carries on, we see something that is quite different between God and humanity. As the story carries on and God places humanity in the garden and gives and gives and gives, Humanity is confronted with an opportunity, a temptation, right? To give in to, the, to this idea that the world is scarce, that God hasn't really provided enough, that God isn't really good, that everything he's given up to this point is not enough. There's something still there, and they feel the need to pursue it. All of this isn't enough. God isn't really giving to me all I need, and now there's an opportunity to pursue something that God is maybe withholding. So they question the goodness of God just as the serpent tempts. Did God really say? Is God really good? Is God really generous? Has God really provided enough, right? And notice how the story carries on. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God said you won't eat or you surely die, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, notice this, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate or he took and ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice this, like what should be happening in your mind is God gives and God gives and God gives and God keeps on giving and then she took. Like there's a massive flip of script here. The, the character and nature of God is to just give and give and give. Then she takes. You should get this. Like something catastrophic has happened here. Something adamantly opposed to the character and nature of, of God has just entered into the world. She takes. She gives to her husband. He takes and eats. What's going on here? Like what we see happening is humanity being contrary to the nature and character of God. They begin to not see the abundance of God and that there's enough. They begin to see the world in this scarcity mentality. And because of this, they take 
They consume for themselves. Because of this, it causes a massive downward spiral of humanity in the world that God intended to have enough. So as you carry on with the story, what you notice is they have a couple children, right? They have these boys. If you've read through Genesis, you're familiar with this story, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are these two sons of of Adam and Eve, and uh, there's not a whole lot of detail given to us in the story in Genesis, but some of the New Testament writers actually reflect back on the story of Cain and Abel and let us know what it is that was really taking place. So as the story is recorded in Genesis, um, Cain brings this offering to God, right? And he brings it of really his, his like first fruits or of his best. In other words, he sees an abundance and he has no problem saying, there's enough here, so I'm gonna give to God. Whereas Cain approaches apparently with some kind of fear, maybe a scarcity mentality, where there's not enough. And so he approaches God with something that's not out of abundance or not out of a heart that sees God as infinite and lacking nothing. So the author of Hebrews will say that he didn't bring really from his heart an understanding of all of who God is or his infinitude, his, his graciousness, right? And so because of this, because of this, Cain gets this attitude towards his brother where, where Cain begins to look at his brother as, as one who he wants to get rid of. And of course he would because he sees the world as scarce, When he sees the world is scarce, he wants to get rid of him because he's greedy, he's afraid. And so what does he do? He takes. But what does he take now? Well, he doesn't just take from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He takes a life. You see, when when we buy into this scarce view of the world or a God who's not infinite and lacking nothing, we want to take and we will even take to the degree of another person's life. And this is the way the story carries on, right? But God, in his generosity, because again, just who he is in his nature and character, he begins to pursue, right? So you see there in the story with Adam and Eve, what did they do? They, they took, and then they left, and then what did they try to do? The first thing that they tried to do was cover themselves. So God gives and he gives and he gives. They take, and then what do they begin to do? They try to earn, right? They try to accomplish. They make for themselves loincloths. But God pursues them, and in God's pursuit of them, because again, he is just generous, this is what he has to do, he begins to make these promises. So if you look back in Genesis 3.15, you notice this. Even after they take, God pursues and he says this. I will put enmity, this is to the serpent, between you and the woman, And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, which is this offspring coming forth, and you shall bruise his heel. This uh, scholars refer to as the proto-euangelion. It's a silly word you can tell your neighbors about later today over lunch. Uh, What it really means is the first gospel. The first gospel being the first good news, this proclamation of God about how he's going to continue to bring his goodness into the world because that's just part of who he is. So he makes this promise that even though the serpent tempted and caused them to see the world in a scarce mentality, what he's going to do is out of his abundance, bring this one who's going to crush the head of that serpent so that we might actually be able to see God and see the world properly. So he pursues humanity even after they take. He pursues and he makes a promise. Now, after this this whole world and humanity begin to spiral out of control, God still isn't done. And so what God begins to do is continually pursue. So after Cain and Abel, again, taking what God does is after humanity spirals out of control from them, he begins to reach in and call for himself people out of his generosity. He wants to see human beings flourish. So if you're not familiar with the story, um, there's actually uh, some words spoken about the, the way in which human beings were thinking and acting after Cain and Abel. There was nothing but wickedness all of the time. And so God looks down and he, he calls this man Noah 
out of this wickedness. And here's what it says in Genesis 9, and I want you to hear the echo of what it is that he said to Adam and Eve. God blessed Noah and his sons, this is after the flood, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He, he doesn't take away the initial like, opportunity of purpose that he gave to Adam and Eve. He continues to commission them. So they, they haven't earned this at all, right? Noah, Noah's not anybody special, and you'll see this as the story carries on. But what God does is because he already gave purpose, and that's part of what he wants to give, he continues to give this purpose. Now, Noah and his family, they spiral out of control, and so like basically everybody's pagan, nobody's pursuing Yahweh for all of who he is. And yet still, God pulls another person out, and this person is Abraham. You can see this in Genesis 12. So the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. Notice this, I will make of you. This is the generosity of God, a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is the whole point. To image God who is generous is for us to be generous. So he says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's whole mission with humanity is for him to shine through them. And if he is in character, nature, generous, so humanity exists to mimic that, right? So he calls this man forth. Abraham has a son who's named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. I'm summarizing all of Genesis for you right here. They, uh, Jacob has 12 sons, which become the, the tribes of Israel. They grow, but they find themselves in famine. Then they go into Egypt. Now we're getting into the book of Exodus. And uh, as they enter into Egypt, um, as they grow, they begin to flourish. Uh, Pharaoh, who is really, um, uh, really just kind of an evil person, um, sort of exemplifying uh, the serpent himself as well, he begins to oppress and enslave these people. They find themselves incapable Right, of being the blessing to the rest of the world or imaging God well. And so what God does is in his generosity, he raises up this man Moses, pulls the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea, and there in the wilderness, God begins to make another covenant. So just the same way he did with Adam, same way he did with Noah, same way he did with Abraham. Now he's got the nation of Israel in the wilderness, and notice what it is that he says in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God, again, promise after promise after promise. Even when people fail, God pursues because it's just part of who he is. Now, after... After they grow a bit there in the wilderness, God gives to them this promise of a land flowing with milk and honey, right? Which I don't know if that matters to you at all, if you could find that land and you'd be like, tons of milk, yes. Um, <laughs> maybe honey, I guess, I don't know. It's, it's always been weird to me that they're like super excited about milk. But, uh, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, um, they enter into the promised land and as they enter into the promised land, they still apparently have this scarce view of the world. And so they begin to gripe against God just like they did in the wilderness. Let us just go back to Egypt, they would say. But here in the promised land, they're like, let us have a king. This isn't enough, God. You're not, you're not really all that generous. Let us have something that we don't yet have. And God's like, trust me, you don't want a king. And they're like, no, no, we want a king. So finally God gives them the king, right? This first king, Saul, um, reveals that clearly they didn't want a king. But he raises up this man, David. And uh, as David is king, God makes this promise to and through David that is uh, reflective of all of these other promises that he's made up to this point about how it is that he is generous and he wants to actually help them to see and to live in this abundance of who he is. And so in 2 Samuel, 
It says this, as God is speaking to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this is kind of a twofold promise because you think of Solomon. Solomon did build the temple, right? And he did sit on the throne. But he says forever. Here what we're getting is a picture of a promised one, right? Just like was in the garden who would crush the head of the serpent, whose kingdom would, would be forever. He would sit on that throne forever. And so here, there's this promise made to David. Now, all of these stories are meant to help us to see the great generosity of God. The sad thing is they continue to spiral out of control just like they had in all those stories that I just mentioned to you. And so king after king after king, um, with a handful of ones in there that are good, are mostly bad. They become oppressive. They're almost like exactly what Egypt was like, what Pharaoh was like. And yet in the midst of this, God continues to make promises. And so through prophets, God will come to them and he'll speak to them about what it is that he wants to do. I want to read to you some of them. In Jeremiah, even though the people are rebellious, he says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. He goes on. They shall all know me. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Notice all the works of God here. He's not expecting them to achieve, to arrive, to earn. God is just giving and giving and giving. In Ezekiel, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You should be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put within you my spirit. I will remove the heart of stone. He goes on, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk my, I, I, I. God is doing this because it's part of just who God is. You get into Isaiah and you get more clearly the promise of the one who's gonna crush the head of the serpent. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. God gives and gives and gives. But notice, even in the midst of their rebellion, God makes these promises, but they're not just words. They're not just promises, like empty promises where God's just saying, like, hey, trust me. God actually fulfills all of these. So some hundreds of years later, after these prophets make these promises by the words of God, what we find is God actually entering into this place to crush the head of the serpent, to let us know that he truly is infinite and lacking nothing. So when Jesus is about to enter onto the scene, here's what you read in Luke As the angel comes to these shepherds, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Fear not. That has to do with the scarcity mentality, right? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. God is abundant. He hasn't given up. He is going to provide everything that he promised in Matthew. But as he considered these things, that is Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So over and over and over again, right? From the beginning all the way through Jesus, and we're gonna look more at Jesus' life, death, resurrection next week, you see the Father as, as almost incapable of giving himself, like he has to. It's not just that he wants to, it's not just that he needs to, he, he in himself, 
His very character and nature is to be generous. Like there's no way around it. He can't deny himself. It's part of who he is. Now, if that's the case, if that's the case, and we think about this world, we think about what it is that we have, we think about the way in which we can see how some have less, or maybe even times in our own lives where it feels as though God isn't really what I was just describing for, I don't know, we're going over time, so was that 40 minutes? <laughs> we often think that that's not the case. So what does that mean for us today? And we're gonna get really practical in the next several weeks, but today I just wanna mention two things. I wanna mention one thing that I think is super important for us to just take in. And so let me just speak this over you. Let me just speak this truth over you so you can just take it in. No matter how you feel, no matter what you're experiencing in your own personal life or in the lives of those around you or what you read in news or what you see going on in the world, what seems true in many scenarios is that God is not infinite and lacking nothing. What seems true is God is lacking and he's just a killjoy. But the reality is God is not done giving. And so wherever it is that you are right now, wherever it is that you feel like you're lacking, God isn't done. Now, listen to me closely. We're all going to eventually experience the lack of something. And to be totally honest with you, it's going to result, unless Jesus comes back, in our death. <laughs> Happy Sunday. Um, <laughs> we're, we're all going to experience the lack of health, at the very least, and we're going to die, right? But what we have in the promises of Jesus is not the abundance necessarily in this life, but the promise of absolute abundance in the next. And so he would say over and over again to his disciples something like, nobody has ever left mother or father or children or home or possessions for me in the kingdom who will not receive in this life potentially, but certainly in the next. Or when Jesus says to his followers, he says, my father has been working up until this point and he's not done. And what he's working for is all of this to become true for us, that his abundance really would take shape in this world. And so when it comes to the new heavens and the new earth, like that's what it is, the abundance of God being spread out into all of this so that we might actually experience what Jesus said he came to do, which is to give life and to give it abundantly. So even if you feel or if you perceive this world in the scarcity mentality, like let's fix that. God is not lacking anything. And God wants more than anything for you to experience life to the fullest here now, but also when he returns and he makes all things new. And with that in mind also, you simply cannot outgive God. Like there's just, there, it's impossible. God is infinite and he's lacking nothing. And if you can see that, if you can really see that God is infinite, lacking nothing, and even in this world that might seem scarce, you don't have to live in the fear that that kind of view wants to trap you in. You don't have to live in greed. You don't have to live in the pursuit of taking from others in any way, shape, or form. You can actually live in such a way where everything you have is in like open hands. And God can take out, God can put in, he can do whatever he wants. You like when you see God as infinitely generous, you can see everything that you have in that way of being able to be his image into this world. And so wherever you're at today, and I don't mean to minimize at all the scarcity that you might be facing or the people in your lives, in your life, whatever it is that they, the scarcity that they might be facing, I don't want to minimize that at all. 
but I do want us to see God. Like see him for all of who he is. Let that inform the way you think about what you have, whether it's much or whether it's little. He is infinite, he is lacking nothing. And so today, we are way past time. We'll just do a couple songs because I hate to leave the kids volunteers up there way too long. I know right now they're probably looking at it, they're like, we're almost done. And they're like, then they're gonna hear the music, they're gonna be like, dang it. <laughs> I'm just kidding, they love the kids, for sure. Um, <laughs> um, what we're gonna do now is, uh, I'm gonna pray for us, but I want you to really think about what we're about to do. Not just in singing and being given the opportunity to sing, but in coming to the table. Like you're coming to a feast that's been provided for you by God himself. Nothing that any of us has earned or achieved, but we get to come and we get to take into ourselves something that God has given, namely his, his own self, right? And so as you take the bread, you dip it in the juice, you take it into yourself, be reminded that God actually is infinite. He is lacking nothing. He's given to you everything that you need in Christ and abundance in this life, whether it's stuff or not, doesn't matter. He's given you himself. So let that be enough for you this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful that you... Uh, Ah, that you have put on display yourself in such a way that could captivate us and encourage us and strengthen us and motivate us that we might be able to live in freedom, in joy, in peace, in comfort, in contentment. And Father, we're asking that uh, the truth that we've taken in this morning about you, about who you are and what you're like, that you would mold and shape our minds and even our actions, that we would become a community of people that image you well by just taking what it is that we have and giving. Thank you for your son, for his sacrifice, and for the table that we get to come to. In his name, amen.